Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story back What was the inspiration on. for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? Testing. I used to be almost dependent Dear B, on voice. A speaker and a poem. I want to talk to you. <laughs> and the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. Richie Hoffman is the author of a collection of poems, Second Empire. He is the recipient of a Pushcart Prize and a Ruthily Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation, and his poems appear in The New Yorker, Kenyan Review, The New Republic, and Plowshares. He has been featured in the New York Times Style magazine, and his poem Children of the Sun is anthologized in Resistance, Rebellion, Life, 50 Poems Now. His poem Book of Statues was read by actor Matt Bomer in a video for the New York Times and has been translated into several languages. He is currently a Stegner Fellow in Poetry at Stanford University. You can read more of Richie's work on his website, www.richiehoffman, that's one F, two N's, dot com. Powdered Wig It is the only thing I want. I am seven, blonde-haired, fay in my interactions. I hold a bright green gift. I know I'm a boy, but I love the fancy things people had in the past. The present gleams in my hands. I touch the scotch tape, which holds the seams together, and keeps what's inside hidden from me. Please, let them have read my mind. This next poem uh, comes with a little story that no one wants to hear. Um, The day after the 2016 elections, I was working as an intern at the Lyric Opera of Chicago, and um, it was a terrible night for everyone. Uh, And the next morning I rode the bus in and everyone's face looked raw from tears And on the order of business for that day was a five and a half hour dress rehearsal of Berlioz's opera Les Troyens, which is about the fall of civilizations, uh, the scorning of the woman prophet, um, the curse of empire. It felt too real, even though it's a 19th century French opera about an ancient Roman poem. Les Troyens. The city not yet shielded in ice. The harbor not yet frozen enough to walk across. Trees without leaves. Prismatic. The thing no one thought would happen, happened. In a vast hall, I watch the walled city made rubble. Prophecy everyone ignores, the women, who'd rather plunge knives into their breasts than be raped by the Greeks. The supertitles in clipped language, American English. It is a dress rehearsal, daylight outside, impossible to banish 
the day's news from my mind. Cassandra ascends the bulwarks, squints, the famed skyline of her city in wreckage, the arts and sciences in a heap of dirty wood, dislodged stones. Her soprano bombards the dark. No one believes the woman. Then ninety-four choristers are singing in horror. Cassandra kills herself. The women follow. Enay, it is his story now, flees the burning city through the wings as everyone scrolls through their phones. When the final three acts premiered, the curtain rose on an ancient time, the work scarcely stageable, impossible music, enormous orchestra, a hundred choristers, two full-scale ballets, an empire holding on in France, theaters built along the widened streets, stripped of their shadows. It would take a full hour to change the set for the scene of the royal hunt, a real waterfall on stage, waters to be diverted from the Seine, to rush into the vision of Carthage, while the dancers gyrated, mimicking the animal love of the handsome refugee and the noble Queen Didon. Enay seeks shelter, water to drink, a body to put his lust in. She is a stopping point, Didon drunk. She is helpless. She begs, the ships waiting in the harbor with their hundred oarsmen, the curved bow, enormous white sails caught in the stillness, the wind's power. Didon in a royal blue pantsuit. Hillary had conceded the hour before, and so it was Hillary's rage I saw in Didon's. Her great American mezzo pushed to the limits as she curses the empire that disdains her. There are cities to found, rivers to divert, marshes to drain. There are sorrows to scratch into tablets, slave girls to break in the fields of goat grass, animals to marvel at in civic zoos, flamboyant plumages, sturdy rumps, indoor plumbing. Didon stabs herself, a vision before her, Enay, the lover who leaves. His descendants will murder her descendants. She rehearses the curse wherever they hide. Their ships to be assaulted by storms. Their houses to be ransacked. Their children to hunger. We roar our admiration. Standing like Americans applauding. So in need are we of astonishment. The violins are placed into hard plastic cases. The oboe pulled apart into its five round pieces. We are returned to our lives. Washington Post articles. Yellow taxicabs. Whackers droning lights. The doors locked again to the public. Virgil's Rome. Berlioz's Paris. Distant as our own wars. Distant as... Other Novembers in Chicago. I'm working on a new book project that considers, among other things, childhood, and in particular, uh, queer childhood. And this poem um, remembers 
um, being a young kid um, working on a school project in the arts and feeling the threat of the real world uh, enter that kind of beautiful kingdom of artistry and kingdom of youth. Book of Statues. Because I am a boy, the untouchability of beauty is my subject already. The book of statues open in my lap. The middle of October, leaves foiling the wet ground in soft copper. A statue must be beautiful from all sides, Cellini wrote in 1558. When I close the book, the bodies touch. In the West, they are tying a boy to a fence and leaving him to die his face unrecognizable behind a mask of blood, his body, icon of loss, growing meaningful against his will. Sacred and Profane Love Our overnight train was outpacing the countryside, the speed at which it moved flattening the grass, while in our sleeper car, he jerked the shirt back up over my shoulders, and I bit the white cotton. The stiff blankets loosening, the shadows loosening, dawn outrunning the edges of the drawn shade. Morning, the clothes flattened with our hands, the suitcase zipped. A short walk to the stone house, to the oak trees the stables where the Lipizzaner stallions were kept, where the riders pushed the horses to perfection in straightness, contact, and impulsion, and in their dark compartments, the young, the celebrated, were changing from gray to white. A lot of my inspiration for my poems comes from my love of the arts, and I love at every opportunity to be a patron of the arts and someone who participates in the artistic life of a community. And so I go to a lot of concerts, probably more than a normal person would. Um, and so I have a lot of poems that are set in concerts. I once had a mentor of mine say, you really need to stop setting poems in concerts. I mean, you're going to have to name the next book Revelations while listening to music. Um, but this is, this is a, a poem about a concert I attended um, in Baltimore, and it's also a love poem um, for two important men in my life. Birthday. I look for words in the dark, silently describing to myself the particular conditions of the weather on the morning I saw you most recently. The wind, its patterned disarray. My mind elsewhere, distracted, lyrical, while the pianist plays an encore. Mozart was born on this day, 257 years ago. All day I have been ungenerous, 
resentful, impatient. In between movements, no applause, but the old ladies cough loudly, violently. We cannot last forever. I loved music before I loved books. I loved Mozart before I loved you. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for being here on Off the Page and sharing your work with us. Thank you for having me. Um, I'd love to start by talking about Les Touraines. Uh, you spoke a little bit about the origin of that poem, and I wondered if you could talk a little more about the writing of it. Well, it was a really challenging poem for me to write. Um, I tend to write short poems that are very intense and very uh, specific to a moment. So it was it was a big challenge for me to try to weave together these three empires. It was also a challenge to kind of keep up some feeling of lyrical intensity while also letting a, our contemporary moment more plainly in than I'm used to, um, specifically in the form of invoking Hillary Clinton by name. The mixing of those time periods felt true to my experience of it. The production was also done in what I would call 20th century dress. But Susan Graham, who sung the role of Didon, was wearing uh, a kind of woman's politician outfit and looked very much to me like Hillary Clinton or Angela Merkel in, in a kind of in the royal blue pantsuit. And it was hard sitting through that watching her sing that curse, having just experienced the kind of shock of the election the night before, and to to not see this long lineage of of this kind of cultural scorning or ignoring of the woman leader, um, to not see the kind of connections between our own kind of imperial twilight in America and um, and what's being depicted on on the stage. And another question I have about that poem is that, and thinking that she was in fact wearing a blue pantsuit, and thinking of all these parallels that are sort of presented to you, is there ever any fear of like this is almost too perfect an idea, or like how do I keep the parallels from seeming too on the nose or from overwhelming the poem? I, that's absolutely something. I mean, I'm still scared about it. Um, I would say my my uh, instinct says that the best thing to do in that case is to just name them, to not be coy about them, to not be suggestive or to make it seem like you want a reader or listener to arrive at the connection, but to just kind of put it out there. I think that's why Hillary's name had to break through. It had to be the secret that the poem held. And I think it had to be held until late in the poem. Well, I also wanted to ask, you know, I know that you have um, contributed a poem to a resistance anthology. And I was wondering if you had thoughts about writing in our particular moment. Um, this is something I've been talking about with my students lately. Um, you know, I think previously I might have thought that a writer's obligation is just to write their obsessions. And if they want to write 50 poems about jelly donuts and masturbation, then, then that's what they do. 
And I still sort of think that. But now there's also maybe this imperative that we feel that, we, that maybe we place on ourselves to to in some way respond to the the horror show of our society. And I was wondering how you felt about maybe balancing sort of the private and public impulses as a writer. I think you're absolutely right. I think I still agree with your first formation or formulation that the writer is obligated to address his or her obsessions. I think that's absolutely true. What I do notice in my own life and in the lives of my friends, many of whom are writers, is that politics has taken on a, a greater obsessive control um, in our lives. I feel like it's something that more people are are kind of experiencing, not only on a daily level, but on a kind of hour-by-hour level. I'm just incorporating that into my sense of the poems. I don't think I have an imperative starting out that the poem is going to speak for a public, speak for a community, address a particular issue. At the end of the day, the poem is the record of, in some sense, an individual experience. I'm really the only one I can responsibly speak for, and I can barely do that. Um, I don't think poetry or fiction um, are probably the best formats for activism. Um, you know, if there's an activist outcome as the result of a poem or story, I think that's wonderful. And I think we all need all the help we can get. But I think um, I think they're limited. They can comment and observe the times. They can weave together through metaphor, through narrative, um, various strands of life, both public and private, and show how they're informing one another. Um, and I think that's, at the end of the day, all the activism they can do. I also wanted to ask about um, something that Le Troyan does and that many of your other poems do, which is obviously respond to earlier works of art, um, opera, visual art. Um, how does... Do you see yourself as being in conversation with earlier works of art? I've always been someone who likes things that no one else does. Um, I think in that way, a deep experience of the arts is often where I locate my loneliness or my solitude, my perspective in some sense as an outsider, um, because most people don't want to attend the five-hour uh, opera with you. And uh, most people, especially little boys, aren't, you know, thumbing through books of Cellini. Um, I'm not doing that, you know, uh, to to be someone. It was just who I was. And that's where I felt, on one hand, lonely, loneliest or most alienated, but probably also most myself and most free. I don't know. I've often felt like I'm was born out of time. And I'm obviously grateful to be in this moment where my life is probably better than it would have been at any time in history. But I've always felt somewhat outside of it. And the arts is where I experience it most. Well, since you speak about being born in this particular time and and 
a sense of gratitude for that. And you spoke about your new book being in part about queer childhood. I also wanted to ask about queer ancestors, queer artistic ancestors. I know, or I believe that you spent some time a few years ago at James Merrill's place in Stonington cataloging his library. Yes, that's right. And do you see yourself as a writer or as a as a reader as a as a as a person looking for those ancestors cuz I feel like you kind of have to go as a queer person you kind of have to go on an archaeological dig sometimes oh, for those ab- figures. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, I can speak about James Merrill, who is one of my absolute loves. Um, I never got to meet him uh, in my actual life, though I think for James Merrill, more than most other writers, you get a chance to kind of consort with them beyond the grave. Um, he spent so much of his career at the Ouija board, conjuring the voices of spirits and of the dead. And so I feel like you can probably access him better than you can anyone else. Um, James Merle was introduced to me in my first semester of college. I had a wonderful teacher, Bonnie Costello, who um, had this great tradition of giving each student in the class a single volume of poems based on what she'd come to imagine of our aesthetics, our sensibilities, what would move us. Um, And I had written my papers that freshman semester on Auden and Eliot and Hart Crane and Walt Whitman. And she gave me uh, James Merrill's book, Divine Comedies. Um, And I remember being totally blown away by them. Um, I felt from reading that one book that I had such a picture of a person that I would love to know and that I would love to, uh, of whose world I would love to be a part of. And I feel really lucky um, what being a James Merrill adjacent person as a kind of scholar of his work and as an admirer has kind of opened up these communities to me, including the one in, in Stonington, where I got to live in in what was his house among his many things and, and really kind of uh, consort with him through that space. I also think queerness is corresponds to the loneliness I spoke of and that I think until recently there are very few models for what happiness and fulfillment are going to look like as as a as a queer person and so I think I think you're absolutely right that often there's a desire to seek these ancestors we often seek that that in in other writers and other times and places um, and I think a lot of that kinship is imagined, but it's no less meaningful. In the poem's Book of Statues and Sacred and Profane Love, you use a form or a model, which I'm sure there is a lovely poetic term for, where essentially bringing together two disparate threads or images, the the book of statues and the image of Matthew Shepard or the train car assignation and the stables. And I wonder if that is a, or I, I wanted to know what those sorts of pairings or binaries 
do for you as a poet and if and if they are your way into a poem? Absolutely. I mean, I feel like most of the time I'm working on what I call sonnet-shaped poem or a sonnet-like poem. But the thing that's most interesting to me about the sonnet is what we call the volta or the turn in the middle. Um, we find this device in Petrarch, but also in Shakespeare, where the first, usually the first eight lines of the poem kind of set up an argument that the final six lines then comment on or diverge from or illustrate. Um, and so I think the two, the two poems that you, that you mention are both actually sonnet shaped poems. So I think that there's something about that, those 14 lines with a turn somewhere in the middle or a little bit at the two thirds mark that just lends itself to putting things into relation. Um, that's why I like really spare poems. Cause I feel like if you just had an entirely, you know, white room in a museum with no decoration, but just a, an object or two in the middle of it, we would automatically be drawn to them by the spareness of the setting. And we'd automatically be kind of thinking about connections between the two things. Sometimes that's a way into the poem. I think in Book of Statues, I had this, this memory of working on this project. And I think in some sense, discovering, this sounds really weird, but I think in some sense, discovering my attraction to men through these Renaissance sculptures in some way, but at the same time, remember, you know, learning about about um, what's happening to Matthew Shepard in the same time period and kind of really coming to the realization that there can be such a cost for those desires, that maybe those desires are best kind of closed in, in the book where they can happen or protected in the realm of art where they can't be touched or destroyed. Um, but I think by the end of the poem, it's, it's just not possible. Well, in that last line about his face becoming meaningful against its will is so is so powerful because it's about this private individual then becoming emblematic of something, becoming a public document or image, in some ways becoming like a statue, yes. but, but, but with this horrible human cost to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. For some reason in my mind, those two moments in my childhood are linked. Um, and I wanted to bring them into, into relation in, in the space of a poem. Um, I don't know if it's entirely successful, but I feel like I had to put those two together. And I think the one, I think, I think, the the kind of 1998 narrative um, had to enter the poem uh, as an interruption to the school project. I want. I think that's how that's how some of these public events seem to kind of invade our our private life. And so, not only is is the figure becoming meaningful for the culture as a kind of document, as you say, I think that's really eloquent, but also becoming meaningful to me. And marking not only grand public history, but also a kind of key pivotal moment in my private history, in my coming into myself um, 
as not just a gay person, but as a kind of human body that has desires all of a sudden. Do you feel as if music has also shaped not just the content of your poetry, but your approach to a poem? The saddest thing about being a poet is that you're not a musician. And the music of words, while maybe very beautiful or seductive, will never have the power, I don't think, of music. And certainly not of song, which is really lucky, because it gets both text and melody. So they get to kind of uh, capitalize on all of the all of the kind of power of words and of story, but also get melisma, also get melody, also get dynamics. Um, I think they have a, a much richer art than than we do as writers. Well, Faulkner said that all novelists were failed short story writers and all short story writers were failed poets. So maybe poets are failed musicians. <laughs> They're certainly failures at something. You said in an interview with Dive Dapper that the world has already written your poem and you need to go out and find the pieces and arrange them. Does this sound familiar? Yes. Oh, yes. It's something I tell my students a lot. Is there a poem that you've read for us uh, today that particularly maybe uh, is an example of that, of that sort of magpie-like searching and arrangement? Well, we could talk about Powdered Wig because I didn't say anything about it. And I kind of regret it because it's a weird poem. Um, but I was a very weird child, as you know, from meeting me and reading some of my poems. Um, and I, I have this very st strange memory of um, holding a, a gift. I don't remember if it was for a holiday or for my birthday or something, but holding a wrapped present, um, which is just such a joy for a child. And I remember truly thinking to myself, I really, really hope it's a powdered wig. I hope they know me so well that they would know exactly what I want is a powdered wig, because I really want to be Mozart or Marie Antoinette or someone from the 18th century who gets to wear stockings and live in an ornate room where they can be their effeminate selves. But it's such a strange memory. And when I went to begin to write it, I think my instinct was to kind of poetify it, to um, draw upon the room, to make it vivid, you know, and then you start having wisteria outside the window, breathing its metaphysical dust, and you have, you know, things become too held in amber. They become too kind of um, made too beautiful. And it doesn't feel believable anymore. And so I remember having to rewrite that poem in particular many times and remembering um, some good advice from one of my significant teachers, Natasha Trethaway, who would say, just just write it down. Um, you know, the poem is the poem is the memory. The poem is a child wanting a powdered wig and hoping that 
this present, which of course is not a powdered. I don't even know where my poor parents would get one. The, of course, it's not a powdered wig, but that that real desire and that notion that children have that like if you hope something strong enough that it'll be that it can that can actually exist in the world. That's the poem. That's has all of the psychological and emotive interest that I think a piece of writing needs. And so in the end, I just had to write it down. And it's too shameful to mention the powdered wig again. So I titled the poem Powdered Wig, and I made the first line, it is the only thing I want. And so that for me is a kind of example of, of the world having already written the poem, and you as the artist having to just put it on paper to kind of fasten it to the page and make it real and share it. Just to circle back really quickly before we before we end to the or to your interest in and and relationship with history, you mentioned something when talking about powdered wig that there was a queerness to the past that you were interested in. I mean, guys got to wear some guys at least got to wear wigs. So is part of that that longing for another time a a, a desire for a more performative mode of masculinity or yeah, oh, absolutely absolutely i thought history was an ornate room that i could hide in and be myself in that's what it meant that's what especially the 18th century and especially living in southern germany as i did for part of my childhood um offered this kind of splendiferous age of of effete aristocracy that was so attractive to me and i think you know as one grows up one realizes that that probably would not have been one's life and um, all manner of punishments would have been devised for um, the very things I thought I would be free to be and experience there. But I think when I look back to that moment in childhood, that's what history meant. That's what I thought. And I think it's obviously naive, but that there's a beauty to that naivete. Yeah, I think holding on to that childhood naivete yeah. is beautiful and splendiferous. Thank you very much for being with us on Off the Page. Thank you so much. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablatza, and Ose Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.